The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations from listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely online at kopn.org. Thank you. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I'm delighted to welcome my guest, Dr. Gail Myers. She is a cultural anthropologist, co-founder of Farms to Grow, Inc., and creator and director of the multimedia documentary film project titled Rhythms of the Land, which is a love story of land and family. She calls it a valentine to generations of black farmers. Dr. Myers is considered an expert in the anthropology of African-American farming, and her passion for black farmers developed as a result of hearing stories of their loss and struggles without recognition for their contributions. In 1997, while pursuing her doctorate at The Ohio State University, Dr. Myers conducted her first interviews with African-American farmers, and for the last 23 years, she has been interviewing, researching, writing about and filming these stories. Welcome, Dr. Myers. It is such an honor to have you here. Thank you, Melinda. It's an honor to be here with you today. And thank you for your continued support of this project. Well, it is a beautiful and critical story. And in listening to interviews, I feel that this film really gives such hope to a new generation of Black youth who want to reconnect with the land. So let us start with some of your interviews. How did you find the black farmers that you interviewed? Well, I maintained communication with a lot of the farmers that I met at Ohio uh, when I was doing my research at The Ohio State University. And before that, finishing that dissertation, I actually did some pilot interviews with families in Alabama and Georgia. And those interviews came through associates and folks that I knew in agriculture. And going to conferences, going to black farmer conferences over the last 20-something years and meeting black farmers and taking information and, and, again, just maintaining relationships. So before I went, I had seven or eight farmers that I knew that I was going to interview. I knew I was going to Louisiana I knew I was going to North Carolina. So in the conducting of the interviews and people finding out that I was there, inevitably someone would call and say, hey, there's another farmer up the street I want you to interview. Call this person. And so that's really how it happened. I did not intend to have over 30 interviews. As a matter of fact, some of them were so impromptu that I wasn't able to keep them in the film because of the audio quality. You may know this, that I was the filmmaker, the audio, the lighting person, <laughs> the driver, you know, the interviewer. And so I, I will say the quality, I would, would love to have had a film crew. But I had this desire to get out there. I researched a decent camera and audio. But in that, some of the lighting just wasn't conducive to putting in the film. So, But I had no idea that this would be the project. But I will say that those interviews that didn't make it to the film, I intend to write about 
those interviews so folks will still have a chance to hear those stories. Right. But that's really how it happened. It was sort of like a snowball of interview that I was so fortunate to find. One of the first people that you'll see in the film is Mrs. Isaphine Thomas. She is 109 at the interview. She actually lived to be 112. And how I ended up with talking to her, one of the farmers who has also helped me drive through the course from Texas to Louisiana, I was supposed to go to Texas four days after I flew into Atlanta got the car, went to Alabama to interview my Aunt Rose. So I was planning to go very methodically through the various states. And he says, no, you got to come and meet Miss Isaphine. He says, she's 109. I was like, okay, I'll be there. So I left out. It was an 11-hour drive. But I knew that this was the moment. He says, nope, you got to come, and I will take you. So those are how those interviews happened, you know, the goodwill of folks. Right. Well, what I love about the film well, I love many things about this film, but I love that you captured the voices of elders. Yes. You know, so often, I think in our culture, in Western culture, we don't value or have reverence for our elders enough. And you capture voices of people, as you say, I mean, Aunt Rose, she turned 104 years old in 2016. Isaphine Thomas, she lived until 112. Many of these people were maintaining their own gardens well into their 90s. And you yeah. think, wow, yeah. they lived in such hardship. And yet they lived so long, and they had access to really good food. Mm-hmm. And the wisdom, one of the things that these elders benefited from, because they were near their elders. You hear Rose says, I followed my mama. You hear Miss Isaphine as well. So that wisdom, that discernment of what's important in life, you know, I say in, in conversations that I have with people is that these elders knew so much about how to maneuver through these this tumultuous times, and they had the wisdom to forgive. They had the wisdom to share all the information and and any resource that they had with the community was sort of this collective idea of sustaining yourself in the community. And so they learned to to live long lives just with wisdom and just strong, strong strong-willed men and women, Mm. really, that just pass knowledge on and they, you know, receive this knowledge. So I think a lot of this is they, just like you said, the importance of the elder's voice, so my goal, actually, Melinda, was to interview the elders. Elders. My first interview that I conducted in ever with a black farmer was in 97 with Mr. William Chambers, and he was 89 when I met him. And that's when I really just fell in love with all things black farming. His wisdom, his philosophy of life, his ease. And he had lost, too, like many of these farmers. He had to witness two of his homes being burnt to the ground and rebuilding. And so he was so much love. I could not understand how this man, after sharing with me some painful experiences that had to be had, you know, when they, at the time, and yet he looked out for everybody in the community. There was a, a woman that had been left in a trailer, and she was a white woman. And he found out that her family had left her. 
he sent his son over there. He says, no, go get her. Go get her and bring her here. She should not be alone. I mean, people like that, you know, from the very beginning, I was just amazed and fascinated by. And so these people, in 97, Mrs. Chambers, in 2012, I continued to meet more people like that. You know, and I got to really get in-depth with interviewing my great-aunt, and it was my great-aunt. And I had heard stories of my great-great-grandfather, her father, but I didn't know the extent of it until I interviewed her. Now, my interview with Aunt Rose took a couple of days, and and actually I've been interviewing over the course of a couple of years. But for this project, I was only able to put in that film, I guess maybe she was appearing three times. But there's so much wonderful information that I found out about my own family and my great-great-grandfather. And so listening to the elders was so important. I wanted to convey that information and the importance of that to an audience. And, of course, a third of those interviewees are no longer with us. Miss Isaphine Aunt Rose, Mr. Ephraim Lewis, Miss Buchanan, Miss Laurentine Garrett, Silas Reed. They are ancestors now. But imagine if I hadn't captured those stories of Miss Isaphine. And again, he won all the ribbons for the biggest watermelon, the biggest tomatoes. You know, it, there's actually a couple of articles out there about her winning. And so she actually had her own garden until she was in her 90s. They stopped her. Aunt Rose, same thing. They thought that she would fall. But it was so important for them to grow their own food. Mm. And um, these stories, we need them because... You know, I see a lot of young folks coming in, a lot of black farmers coming in. They don't even know the shoulders that they're standing on. They don't even know the sacrifices that these farmers, because these are missing narratives. You know, you think of the ag, the stock narrative. It's a white guy in boots and a cowboy hat, and, you know, those are the stories that we hear. We don't hear these stories. And so these stories will honor the experiences of black communities that built the whole infrastructure out of nothing. You know, coming out of the Civil War, these farmers the, who, before they became sharecroppers and, and first-generation farmers, they were strewn alongside the road, dirt roads, with nothing but the clothes on their back, no food, no address, no place to call home. That's what happened after the Civil War. Just a bunch of folks, you know, you think of homeless camps now. Think of, night, you know, 1863, when all of this was happening, 1865, after the emancipation, and all of these communities from from 1865 by the 1910, these farmers had accumulated 16 million acres in the South. You know, if there were black farmers, maybe 1% of people were free, maybe less, and they had some land in other parts of the country. But in the South, black folks didn't have any land to go from no land, from being homeless, just on the side of the Road starving and developing whole communities. There were about 180 all black towns between the end of the Civil War and, and World War One, World War Two, and those black towns made it possible for communities to build schools and churches. And these people went on to themselves become politicians and lawyers and educators and and leaders. And so this story is so important that they understand the shoulders, the torch that's being passed on to them, the charge that's being given to them, and the joy in which people who, although suffered, the joy they took to feeding themselves. 
themselves and their community. As you will see, Miss Isisine and other people talk about this. You know, Vermont Preston says, I, I grow it to give to the community. That was joy for him. Mm-hmm. Dr. Myers, you write that in 1920, there were over 920,000 black families farming in the United States. The majority of those farmers were sharecroppers and tenant farmers. Today, there are just over 48,000, which is a 95% decrease in 100 years. So Uh black farming families, I want to know the trajectory here. How did black farmers get land after the Civil War? And then how did they lose it? Well, very early, they worked for the plantation owners, many as sharecroppers, and they saved money. Many worked, as mentioned in the film, the classic example I use is Mr. Ephraim Lewis. His father was a slave. He bought himself out of slavery. Later on, he bought his mother out of slavery. And at one point, he became, it's not in the film, but the 3,000 acres his grandfather had owned eventually 3,000 acres. And that came about from laboring, going into the woods, chopping down trees, making them into railroad posts, any kind of other menial, subservient labor. Uh, Oh, gosh, what the Virgie talks about, her father working for 50 cents a day. You know, these farmers labored and saved their money. And when one family got land, they worked together to help them manage it and save money to get other parts of land. And so it was very hard-earned. Virgie tells a story about her mother-in-law's family that they were saving so much that she couldn't afford to get a belt. She had to wear a string. The Garrett's family tell me about their grandmother, who was a stockwoman. We don't hear about black women managing cattle. Wow. But her, she made her money raising cattle, milking, had chickens, uh, had milking cows and made butter and went to the market and saved up all of that money. She had a conversation with her daughter. She saw her daughter with a new dress. She said, what are you doing with that new dress? You need to make your clothes and save your money. So actually her daughter, Geraldine Garrett, in there, she became a home ec teacher because she used to sew clothes. Mm -hmm. They sold everything. She sewed a suit when her father passed away. Mm -hmm. So they made all kinds of sacrifices. That's how they got that land. Some inherited the land. Some of the farmers that are in, in the film talk about inheriting the land from their fathers, who, again, worked doing menial jobs, doing agriculture, still after the enslavement period, doing slave labor to get those farms. They were hard-earned, hard-worked for the results of hard work. Dr. Myers, let me take one break because we are halfway through, and I just want to remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are speaking with Dr. Gail Myers. She's a cultural anthropologist. She is the director of the multimedia documentary film project titled Rhythms of the Land. It is a valentine to generations of black farmers. Okay, I need to jump in to this land ownership and land lost. Because if I'm understanding the history correctly, it was very difficult for black farmers to stay on their land because they were constantly under pressure of being violated, right? Like you spoke about Mr. Chambers and how his home was burned down twice. 
And this was in mm-hmm. northern Kentucky. In uh, southern Ohio, probably about 25 miles uh, north of Kentucky border. Okay. Then we're talking about being in the South and then having people under threat of being lynched because white people wanted that land that black farmers owned. And then mm-hmm. on top of that, just the threat of being killed was the injustice of USDA and who got loans and who got to have all the benefits that were afforded to the white farmers. So let's talk about the land lost. You know, how did we get from 920,000 black farming families to just over 48,000? Okay. Well, there are several small factors, but I think, honestly, if the black farmers had had the same support that white farmers had through the farm home loan services and the USDA, they would have had a better outcome. But, of course, many of these farmers were cotton commodity farmers. Cotton moved, sort of the central production moved. The prices got lower because they weren't looking at the, you know, there wasn't a lot of demand for cotton in the South at one point. So these farmers were working against a rising tide of the loss of cotton prosperity. Right. So that put a small few out of business. Some, and this happened uh, maybe two generations later, this is heirs property. Most black farmers' families like using more of sort of the Africanist perspective of dividing land equally, that it belonged to the whole family. That eventually, as generations went by and the 100 acres was divided into 10 and the 10 was divided into 4 and 5, so they began to lose land because of infringement of folks coming and saying, let me get this 5 acres from you. The families that were inheriting the land, some couldn't afford it. So because they couldn't actually develop heirs' property land, they couldn't go and get a loan for heirs' property land. Now that's recently changed in the last farm bill. There's been a lot of support for lending and families with heirs' property. So that was one. Of course, the wars took folks away. There were some pull factors uh, between World War One and World War Two. You know, families either were going to war, then there was the, the to the Great Migration. And so those small factors put a lot of farmers off the land. But there was significant amount, as I say, the 218,000 from 1910, many of those farmers were independent. They were owners. Those are the folks that began to maintain communities. And so in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, that's when the USDA's impact was really felt, and a lot of these farmers didn't get the support that they need. Alvin Stepp talks about, here's the beginning of the Pigford. The report, this equity report, had been done in the 80s and later on, the early 80s and later 89, and they found that there was discrimination. But what happened with Alvin Stepp, he, they, a group of farmers, went to Arkansas and filed a complaint, and because, and as he explained in the documentary, during that time, uh, Reagan was in office, so the Office of Civil Rights wouldn't even address those. So a lot of farmers lost land between the late 70s and the 90s. So that was a big, like we're losing land like at 1,000 acres a day. And so what you're looking at now is with the 48,000, 
actually there are 33,000 who are on land. The other from 33, almost like the difference between the tenant and the independent landowners, the other farmers are farming. Some of them are urban farmers. They're leasing land, but they're not landowners. There's a little over 33,000 black farms, people that own their land, black families that are on land. But that other number, the 48,000, those are folks that have registered on the census as a black farmer. So, yeah, the land loss, there were several factors, but the USDA, the appropriations that were made, just the neglect at a time that was so critical for black farmers, they didn't get the support, so they left the land. Right. And many of them targeted. Right. You know? Well, I'm glad you brought up Pigford because many of our listeners may not know about this, but it was Pigford versus Glickman, and that was the lawsuit against loan discrimination against black farmers. So that was a lawsuit against USDA, and the black farmers won. They won some financial reimbursement. Right. They won a bit. The, The payout was a billion. But, you know, so many farmers didn't get money, and so many families that lost land, it's the, the ones that got 50000 they really, <laughs> you couldn't do very much with that. And it, wouldn't, it couldn't bring back the land that was lost. And I think when most people know about litigation, if you, you know, you have an attorney, the attorney's going to get a third of that, right? So they're right. having to split that. So there was not a lot of, as, as I say in the film, Alvin Stenup, the main character that made it instrumental. So what happened is, like he mentioned, all those farmers that filed complaints throughout the state against the farm home loan, those complaints were shredded. So there was no proof. You can't file a class action suit unless you've already issued a complaint. Because Alvin was such a meticulous record keeper, he kept the complaint copy with a stamp for 1989 or 1986. And they were able to use that to the Department of Justice so they could move forward to sue the United States Department of Agriculture. Right. But if it wasn't for Alvin, those farmers, they might not have even been a pig bird. Right. And I think that we should mention Shirley Sherrod, who also appears in your yes. film, former yes, Georgia Mr. State Mark, yes. Director of mm-hmm. Rural Development at USDA, who was forced to resign her post because she spoke the truth. She spoke of unfair... Right. Racism. And because of that, she was forced to resign her post. But she tells the tragic story of her farming father's murder by a white farmer that Uh inspired her long career of public service. Right, right. There were witnesses, but there was no prosecution, no justice. No justice. that That was her work. Yeah, She made sure that she did right by her community. And she's, her husband, unfortunately, um, Mr. Sherrard, has recently passed. Right, Charles Sherrard was wonderful in his fight for community around civil rights. Mm-hmm. And yes, I was very fortunate to get an interview with Mrs. Sherrard. Again, so many stories that I couldn't put in there. Yeah, that story about her father being murdered, witnesses. Nothing happened to the other farmer. That's right. I want to ask you about something that you said that may not be understood because I had to learn about it myself, and that had Uh to do with heirs' property. Can you describe what that means exactly? Well, that means, so one of our board members is a sixth-generation farmer. Their family 
had land prior to the Civil War. Her father worked very hard to get this land. So when he passed, the land was, he had 10 kids. Each of the kids got 10 acres, right? So they had their 10 acres farming individually. And then when their time to pass on the land, and they pass it on to their children. So eventually there is this fragmentation of the land. But the other part that is so troubling about the heirs' property, and our, I guess our ag policies had to catch up with it, is that you couldn't go to the bank to get a loan if the property was owned by several heirs. You had to get all those signatures. They had to have, you know, all of the process of uh, applying for qualifying. And so it was just so prohibitive that they couldn't even improve the land that they had inherited. So that meant that a lot of that land eventually was lost because on one eventually some of the heirs just began to sell it. It's like, I don't want to be a farmer. Yeah. I'm going to sell this part of the land. So they sold it. In many cases, it was either to, you know, white family eventually, and then it was developed. And uh, so a lot of cases you have families that had land is, you know, the middle of like 1860 and 1870. They still have a portion of it, but it's now maybe 10, 15 acres. And so fortunately, though, with the new farm, I think it was the 2017 Farm Bill, where there was some understanding that there was no way to keep saving black farmers if a lot of their family's land was an heir's property. So that's the case today in a lot of situations where you've got six siblings and they all own a little portion of the land and maybe two of them want to sell it and, and, and none of them are on the land, maybe one, but many of them are in northern states. You know, mm-hmm. like folks, when they left that land, they went to Chicago, Detroit, and so the family members are not able to develop it, and it's just sort of languishing. So, yeah, heirs' property. Mm -hmm. I just want to say that we're nearing the end of our time, but you said something earlier that I want to bring forth, and that was that the elders that you spoke to had the wisdom to forgive, and that is a beautiful comment that we could speak about for another half hour, but we don't have that time. (laughs) But it's a beautiful sentiment, and it's very difficult when you consider all of the injustices that these individuals had to face. You know, being a sharecropper, working, backbreaking work, and not getting paid for that work. You speak about the beauty of the connection of people and land, and I just think that this film is so powerfully rich. Now, we just have 30 seconds. What is the last message you want to leave our listeners with? This story needs to be told. It's long overdue. And it's a way to honor our past so that we can grow a stronger future. That is beautiful. We have to close, but during Black History Month, I think it's the most important story that we can tell and one that isn't. So in closing, 
I want to thank our listeners for joining us. Remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn for KOPN in Columbia, Missouri. But most of all, I want to thank my guest, Dr. Gail Myers. She is the director of the multimedia film documentary, Rhythms of the Land. I will provide a link to that. You've got a rich website. We can learn so much from the enslavement period to the present. The story is long overdue. Thank you, Dr. Myers. It's my pleasure. Thank you.